Careful consultation of the biblical record reveals a series of time spans linking creation to the crucifixion. As a thought experiment, we combined these time spans to estimate the minimum and maximum allowable date of creation. Our goal was not to contradict the existing body of literature on the subject, but to put constraints on what is and is not biblically allowable. Implied precision and potential cultural differences, for example, calendar systems, birthday conventions, and rounding conventions, mean we cannot pinpoint the age of the earth to a single year. Yet the accumulated imprecision from those sources is limited to a maximum range of 308 years. Even including textual variants and debates over interpretation does not allow for dates approaching 10,000 years, let alone billions of years of earth history. Accounting for all presently known relevant details and assuming the Babylonian captivity began in 587 or 586 BC, we can say with confidence that the Bible places limits on the year of creation between 5665 and 3822 BC. The uncertainty within the range is mainly driven by textual considerations. The Masoretic and Septuagint debate creates a 1326-year dichotomy. The long versus the short sojourn positions differ by 215 years, and various interpretations of the kings of Israel and Judah equates to around 54 years of additional uncertainty. Christians should avoid dogmatic claims of dating precision greater than intended by the Bible that could be refuted with new evidence, causing some to mistakenly believe the Bible itself has been refuted. Yet the combined tally of all the available data gives us fairly tight constraints on the age of the earth. The Biblical Minimum and Maximum Age of the Earth by Chris Hardy and Robert Carter Using the Bible to estimate the date of creation has a long and rich history. The early church fathers put numbers on it, as did scientific greats like Sir Isaac Newton, who went with 400 BC, and Johannes Kepler, who went with 3992 BC. The great academic and Archbishop James Usher's date of October 23, 4004 BC is perhaps the most famous estimated date in history, although he has been much maligned by scoffers in recent years. Most scholars veered away from biblical fidelity in the 19th and 20th centuries, and very few seem interested in mining the Bible for chronological details. In more recent years, however, the Journal of Creation has been filled with many contributions on the subject. Starting with the first issue in 1984, Osgood began publishing a series of papers that stretched out over the next several issues, eliciting responses and counter-responses from various people. Over the years, more than a dozen different authors have published papers on chronology in the journal. They disagree on some of the details, and there have been some several sharp disputes, but two things do unite them. A belief in the perspicuity of scripture and a desire to systematically derive a consistent biblical dating scheme. We set out not to put a specific date on creation, but to put limits on the range of acceptable dates. And while we certainly have strong opinions on how to resolve several of the historical debates, we wanted to know the worst-case scenario rather than to assume those opinions are correct. We acknowledge the great amount of work that has already been done and we are indebted to the prior body of publications. 
However, there are several factors that have not yet been systematically outlined, and these have a small but important effect on all date calculations. Our research was foreshadowed by one of the earlier contributors, Pete Williams, whose paper "Some Remarks Preliminary to a Biblical Chronology" appeared in the Journal of Creation in 1998. There are some specific dates given in the Bible that are not up for debate. When a biblical author says a person was X number of years old when something happened, if we do not take that as a historical statement, we quickly get to the point where words have no meaning. Many such numbers can be found throughout the Bible. For instance, we know that Caleb was forty years old when he was sent with the other spies to Canaan. Read Joshua fourteen seven, and we know that Caleb was eighty five when he approached Joshua after the invasion of Canaan was completed to request Hebron for his inheritance. Joshua fourteen ten. We also know that the spying was done in the fall because it occurred during the grape and the pomegranate harvest in Numbers thirteen twenty and twenty three. Statements like these are a very important source of data for biblical chronology. There are other statements that give us a span of time between events. For example, in the time of the judges, the Ammonites attempted to lay claim to the Reubenite territory just south of Ammon and east of the Dead Sea. Jephthah taunted the Ammonite king, saying, "While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aror and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon." Three hundred years. Why did you not deliver them within that time? Judges eleven twenty six. Thus, it is clear that the Israelites had occupied that area for three hundred years. This probably does not mean exactly three hundred, but it does proscribe any attempt to reduce the period of the judges to much smaller values. There are other numbers in the Bible, however, that are more ambiguous, and when we string together multiple dates and date ranges, each with a certain degree of built-in ambiguity. We must acknowledge certain limits to precision. To generate a potential range of dates for creation, there are several sources of imprecision for which we must account. Some of these sources are inherent in the way humans report numbers. Others come with ambiguous statements in the biblical text, such as Tara's age at Abram's birth. Still, others come from the fact that we do not know which timekeeping conventions the ancients may have used. Williams used the phrase "cumulative imprecision" to describe the problem. We will copy his terminology, but by imprecision, we do not mean error or that the biblical authors were sloppy with their reporting. On the other hand, we should not read biblical time statements as though the intent of the authors was to build a minute-by-minute timeline of Earth history. Most of the time statements are simple reports of major happenings, and they tied those to a general series of datable events, like a man's age at the birth of a son. Sometimes, but not always, a series of dates can be bridged by a spanning statement that reduces the cumulative imprecision. And considering that most dates are given in years, we should not consider these to be an exact day count. Th- this is what we mean by imprecision. Accounting for each source of imprecision widens the potential range of dates for creation, and there are many factors to consider. Yet each source of imprecision has a limited effect. Therefore, the extent of the accumulated imprecision is also limited. We will consider each source of imprecision in turn. For example, there is implied precision. When humans report measurements, the context or style of the report often implies the precision of that measurement. If someone were to claim a structure was a hundred meters long, but it turned out to be a hundred and one meters long, it would be a false claim. The person said it was exactly one hundred meters long. One cannot arbitrarily change significant figures when reporting numbers. 
Another source of ambiguity deals with rounding of numbers, and we should not assume ancient writers used modern rounding conventions. For all we know, any time they mentioned a year, they may have been rounding up or rounding down. An example of this can be found in 1 Kings 7.23 concerning the Bronze Sea, which Solomon commissioned to be made for the temple. To quote, It was round, ten cubits from brim to brim, and five cubits high, and a line of thirty cubits measured in circumference. Modern scoffers often claim the Bible wrongly teaches the value of pi, which is the circumference of a circle divided by its diameter, to be 3.0, rather than the correct 3.14. They are claiming a greater precision than was specified. Ignoring whether the Bronze Sea was a perfect circle, and whether the diameter measurement was for inside or outside, it could be anywhere from 9.5 to 9.7 cubits in diameter to give it a circumference of between 29.8 and 30.5 cubits using the correct value of pi. When our interpretation includes a correct understanding of implied precision, we find that the value of pi derived from operational science agrees with the record of 1 Kings 7.23. Next, we should consider calendar systems. In addition to the uncertainties generated by implied precision, we must also consider the timekeeping convention used by the people reporting those dates. Many ancient societies used what was called lunisolar calendar systems, where months are tied to a lunar cycle, but an occasional 13th intercalary month is added to keep months aligned with seasons, since 12 lunar months are 11 days short of a solar year. Some societies also standardized the process with the addition of seven deliberately placed intercalary months within 19-year cycles. This was more predictable than the as-needed method, but still required an additional intercalary month every 80 years to keep months aligned with the seasons. However, standardization would often take centuries, and different localities have often used conflicting systems. While we do not know the exact antediluvian method used, we do know that the Jews have used a lunisolar calendar since the Exodus, when Moses was directed by God to institute a new system. You can find this in Exodus 23.16, Leviticus 23.39, and other references. There are abundant examples of cultures changing time conventions. Before Islam, the Arabs used a lunisolar system, but Muhammad arbitrarily abolished the use of intercalary months in the Quran. Modern Muslim countries such as Saudi Arabia use a 12-lunar month Hijri calendar, where a month in summer one year will be in winter 17 years later. Their year numbering starts with Muhammad's move from Mecca to Medina in 622 AD. On the New Year's Day 2014 AD, 1,392 solar years later, the Hijri year was 1435. There are many other examples of societies wrestling with time measurement. For instance, the Romans arbitrarily changed the date of the new year to January 1st in the 2nd century BC. What is called the Years of Confusion which followed were resolved by the Julian calendar, which realigns the months of the seasons by having one year of 445 days. Many ancient cultures began their year at the vernal equinox, while others began at the autumnal equinox. Various European localities up to the Middle Ages used a variety of days to begin the year after the Council of Tours outlawed New Year celebrations in 567. Even the Gregorian calendar system with January 1st on New Year's Day was not adopted uniformly across Europe with the British Empire holding out until 1752, in some jurisdictions even longer than that. 
ancient peoples living in temperate latitudes presumably measured tropical years instead of sidereal years. However, ancient peoples living near the equator, or in places with no pronounced seasonal differences, for example the way many people imagine the antediluvian world, might be expected to default to a sidereal year, when the sun and the stars and the earth return to the same alignment. Since a sidereal year is only about 20 minutes longer, that is, one sidereal year equals 1.0003878 tropical years, this would have no significant impact on any age calculations to the nearest year, adding at most one hour every three years, or just under 14 days in 1,000 years. However, this would have affected Usher's October 23rd, 404 BC date. So listeners, take caution. The Mayans used multiple simultaneous calendars, including a 260-day divine calendar, the most important, a long-count calendar similar to the Julian calendar, with which they dated past and future events, a civil calendar similar to the Gregorian calendar, and a 584-day calendar based on the position of Venus where five Venus-long years are about eight solar years, or 99 lunar months. Now, the point of this survey is to illustrate the fact that we do not know which convention was used in the ancient past, and we do not know if all the biblical data are reported with the same convention. Different years may have been reported in systems other than ones that align with solar years. And multiple possible shifts of six months or more may have occurred when cultures switched or reformed their calendar systems. Then we need to take into account the cultural differences in birthday conventions and counting age. So far we have considered imprecision in number reporting and a diversity of changing calendar systems, but we must also consider how ages are reported. In some East Asian cultures, newborns are traditionally said to be one year old better translated in his first year, and the boy's age is tracked by the Lunar New Year instead of on his birthday. It is possible that a child in these cultures could be two years old, while native English speakers would say that they are one month. And then additionally, there are some cultures that count age from conception rather than birth. People sometimes keep track of multiple time conventions simultaneously and can flip from one to the other at will meaning it is often difficult for an outsider to keep up, and context is of utmost importance. Therefore, we must also allow two fewer years than the reported biblical ages in order to account for unknown birthday conventions. Next, we need to account for rounding imprecision accumulating. There are detailed genealogical lists in the Bible, for example in Matthew 1 and Luke 3. Some, however, come with specific dates and ages, in the example of Genesis 5 and Genesis 11. The latter are more properly called chronogenealogies, and they are of utmost importance, for they allow us to build a straightforward history of the time period that they cover. Yet there are certain facts about these numbers of which we must account. The chronogenealogies of Genesis are not based on a calendar system. The years are given as the age of the Father, not the age of the Earth. If, as in the modern English-speaking cultures, they use zero-based ages incrementing on birth dates, since a child can be born anywhere within the one-year span, each generation should add an average of six months to the calculations. It is unlikely that a series of children would all be born on each successive father's birthday or on the day before these birthdays, but accounting for the possibility of both extremes allows us to better estimate the range of dates for creation. Assuming random birth dates and that the ages were zero-based, 
ten generations would carry about five extra years. But if ages were one-based, we should subtract about five years for every ten generations instead. Many scholars of the past, including Usher, have failed to recognize what we call date slippage. To test the effect of date slippage over the number of reported generations between Adam and Noah, we created a simple Excel spreadsheet and populated it with pseudo-random numbers representing the month of birth of consecutive children over ten generations. After a thousand trials, fully 92% of the replicates, near two standard deviations, had a total slippage of four to five years, and 1.5 had a slippage of as few as two or as many as eight years. This works for both positive, the zero-based, and the negative, the one-based date slippage. Clearly, this is a factor that needs to be taken into account when attempting to date creation, but it primarily applies to the pre-Exodus chronogenealogies. Now let's consider the rounding of ages. Consider the first five biblical patriarchs listed in Genesis 5. Their ages at the birth of the next in line and at death are listed, but nine of the ten ages end in a zero or a five. This suggests the numbers may have been rounded to the nearest five, or they may have used a five-year ratcheting scale, where the age was only incremented every five years, meaning Adam could have been nearly 135 and still truthfully reporting his age as 130. The lone two is Seth's age at death. From Jared to Shem, we see two additional digits giving the appearance that they rounded down into the nearest two. Then there's the lone nine for Methuselah's age at death. Interestingly, in both cases, the distribution of the reported numbers is evenly balanced. That is to say, it's about the same number of zeros and fives from Adam to Mahilalel, and about the same number of zeros, twos, fives, and sevens from Jared to Shem. We are not trying to prove these dates are rounded or ratcheted, but since the numbers are just so odd, what we mean is that they're just not what you would expect from a random sampling, as even the post-flood patriarchs have three times more zeros than expected we must allow for the possibility. In order to account for potential changes in random conventions, we will allow for a five-year rounding convention from Adam to Mahilalel, a two- to three-year rounding convention from Jared to Shem, and a one-year rounding after that. So why might the author of this section of Genesis have rounded these ages to the nearest five years? Possibly this was due to their great age, where a count precise to a single year might not be all that important to the individual when reporting his age, although ratcheting is more likely in this case. Searching for a mathematical reason for the apparent rounding leads us to consider the possibility that the first few generations measured ages in 60-month periods. Initially, the lunar cycle would have been the most obvious way to track time especially if Eden and or its environs did not have significant seasonal variants. They may have measured longer periods of time in groups of lunar months instead of years. If the first five patriarchs reported ages in 60-month blocks, the ages may have been converted later by multiplying by five, with one exception, giving us the ages we have in the biblical record in 12 lunar month years. There are many possible reasons for the appearance of these numbers, including random chance, But we are obliged to consider both rounding and ratcheting in our calculations because we cannot rule out these possibilities. So all of these imprecision factors come in two categories, per link and overall. The following calculations will accumulate per link factors, such as from birthday conventions and rounding. Then we'll apply the overall factors, such as calendar conventions, at the end.
So there is the period between creation and Noah. In a table in this article at creation.com, we list the minimum and maximum and simple additive dates for Noah to Adam from Genesis 5, accounting for potential differences in birthday and rounding convention. Then there is the time from Noah to Arphaxad. Genesis 7, 6 and 7, 11 state the flood started in Noah's 600th year, and chapter 8, 13 states the flood ended in his 601st year. This eliminates the possibility of a plus 5 rounding. Applying the limits of potential birthday conventions and offsets, we find the flood started between 598 and 601 years after Noah's birth. The simple additive date for the flood is 1656 years after the creation of the world, but it could have been anywhere from 1626 to 1693 years after creation. Genesis 11.10 tells us our said was born two years after the flood. This could mean in the second year after the flood started, just over one year after the flood ended, or during the second summer, winter, or fall or spring after the flood ended, or up to not quite three years after the flood ended. Simply adding up the spans shows Arphaxad was born around 1656 years after creation, with an outside range of 1628 to 1697. And note that we have skipped Shem on purpose, because the best links are from Noah to the flood to Arphaxad, making the ambiguity of Shem's birth year irrelevant. Then we have the spans between Arphaxad to Terah. There is another table in this article at creation.com for the minimum, maximum, and simple additive dates for Arphaxad to Jacob from Genesis 11, 21, and 25. Now let's take in the 50-year ambiguity from Terah to Abram. The age of Terah when his son Abram was born is ambiguous because we only know Terah was 70 years old when Abram's oldest brother was born. The narrative from Genesis 11, 26 through 12, 5 states that Terah, Abram, and his family moved from Ur to Haran, lived there for a while, and Abram moved from there to Canaan. That narrative implies, and Acts chapter 7 verse 4 confirms, Abram waited until his father died before leaving for Canaan and states that he was 75 years old when he left. If Abram left very soon after Terah died at 205, this would have made Terah 130 when Abram was born. But the text does not exclude the possibility that Abram waited. He may have lived in Haran for decades after his father Terah died before leaving for Canaan. We all know that he was old enough to be married to a wife 10 years younger, Genesis 17.17, before they moved to Haran, Genesis 11.31. Terah, therefore, may have been as old as 108 when Abram was born, assuming Sarai was at least 15 when she married Abram. This is a break from the strict chronogenealogy and impacts the date of creation by up to 50 years. Now we got to take into account the span of time between Abraham to the Exodus. Genesis 21.5, 25.26, and 47.28 and Exodus 12.40-41 allows us to estimate the number of years from Abram's birth to the Exodus. Assuming a plain reading of Exodus 12, this amounts to 720 years, 430 of which occur between Jacob's move to Egypt and the Exodus. The 400 years of Genesis 15-14 would start in Exodus 1-8 when the Pharaoh who knew Joseph was replaced by one who enslaved the Israelites. Note that although Genesis 21-5 says Abraham was 100 when Isaac was born, this does not allow for a 5-plus year rounding system because in Genesis 17-1, we were told that he was 99 years old the year before Isaac was born. 
Jacob and eleven of his sons moved to Egypt in 2299 after creation. Simply adding the spans puts the exodus around 2729 with a range of 2676 to 2834. However, Usher and others have proposed that the 430 years Israel lived in Egypt started with God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12:1 through 3 instead of with Jacob's arrival in Egypt. The 400 years of Genesis 15:14 would then start in Genesis 21:8 through 9 when Ishmael mocked Isaac at his weaning feast. Rather than attempting to resolve this historical debate here, we acknowledge both positions have strengths and weaknesses, and including the range from both positions for the range of the Exodus, that is 2461 years to 2834 years after creation. From this point on, we will use the time span for the long sojourn view, acknowledging the short sojourn additive. Minimum and maximum dates will be 215 years less. Now let's look at the Exodus through the Babylonian captivity. The books of Kings and Chronicles contain an unbroken chain of time spans from the Exodus to the Babylonian captivity. Simply adding up the years with a maximum length within the implied precision from each link yields a maximum biblically compatible time span of 437 years from the beginning of Solomon's reign to the Babylonian captivity. Teal claimed regnal years were reported by two different systems. Accession year and non-accession year reckoning. He presented evidence of swaps between conventions in both Judah and Israel, in addition to the two kingdoms using different conventions simultaneously. And this limits the precision of dating simply based on cross-referencing regnal years. Further complicating the matter, Judah appears to have advanced regnal years in the spring when their new year began, while Israel advanced their years in the fall when their new year began. Teal's 383 years from the start of Solomon's reign to the Babylonian captivity is probably the shortest time span proposed by a conservative scholar. Additional modifications and discussions of Teal's work can be found in Kaiser and Kitchen. Jones accounts for changing regnal year conventions and deferring New Year months using a more straightforward interpretation than Teal to arrive at a longer time span of 429 years. Pierce rejects Teal completely. And Clark rejects Austin's and Ashton and Downs attempts at linking biblical chronology to Egyptian chronology because they are based on the ideas of Velikovsky, whom he claims has been thoroughly discredited. Now, all of these authors have a high view of scripture, so clearly biblical chronology is a difficult subject. Now let's look at the Babylonian captivity to Christ. Second Kings twenty-three and twenty-four states that the kingdom of Judah was carried into captivity in three waves. And the extra-biblical historical consensus is that these waves occurred in 587 to 586 and 582 BC. The only biblical time span between then and the New Testament comes from Daniel 9:24 through 26. It's a prophecy that places a minimum of seven plus 62 sevens, which is commonly assumed to mean 483 years from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem until the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Yet there are multiple such decrees, and we are not sure to which Daniel refers. Although Austin argues strongly for one specifically, while at the same time removing a gap of 80 to 82 years, which were inserted by Usher and others by equating Darius to Artaxerxes, we must also rely on extra-biblical history to pinpoint the birth of Jesus Christ. This seems to be fairly well established at around 4 BC, 
although there are various biblical conservative counterarguments for a variety of dates in that range. The year of Christ's death can be garnered from secular sources and is attested by Daniel 9. Yet we chose to peg our age estimate to the start of the Babylonian captivity because it allows for a slightly higher degree of certainty and because there is little dispute after that date. Now let us compare the Mesoretic with the Septuagint versus the Samaritan Pentateuch. A few hundred years before Christ, Alexandrian Jews produced a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, commonly abbreviated LXX. The authors of the New Testament frequently quoted directly from the Septuagint when referencing the Old Testament. The Masoretic text is the collection of Hebrew scriptures collated around 700 to 1000 AD and is the basis of most modern Old Testament translations. We have many ancient fragments of scripture in Hebrew, for example, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and these documents match the Mesoretic text very closely, showing the quality of the work of the copiers in the intervening years, and supporting the authenticity of the Masoretic. The Septuagint puts the earth significantly older than the Masoretic, including 586 additional years before the flood, and 780 additional years from the flood to Abraham's grandfather Nahor. This is mostly due to the Septuagint including a hundred more years for the ages of various patriarchs at the birth of their son. The Septuagint also includes a patriarch named Canaan between Arphaxad and Salah in Genesis 11.13. This name does not appear at that point in the Masoretic or the Samaritan Pentateuch. Most Greek texts of Luke 3.36 agree with the Septuagint on that point. From Terah forward, the primary date-relevant conflict is 1 Kings 6.1, in which the Septuagint dates the beginning of Solomon's temple to 440 years after the Exodus versus 480 in the Masoretic. Even though we favor the Masoretic, we cannot know for certain, and therefore we must acknowledge the possibility of the older dates from the Septuagint by adding 1,326 years to the maximum age allowed by the Masoretic. And there is another source of deferring chronological data, the Samaritan Pentateuch. Written in Hebrew but with a different etiology, it defers with the Masoretic in several thousand places, sometimes agreeing with the Septuagint and sometimes not. We do not put much stock in its authority, but there is a table about this in the article on the website. It subtracts 349 years before the flood and adds 650 years after it for a net of 301 years more than the Masoretic. Now let's think about the limited gap-free imprecision. As detailed earlier, there are no chronological gaps from Genesis 1-1 to the Babylonian exile. There is also no place where the text allows the insertion of an unlimited amount of time. In addition, we are taking Genesis 1's narrative literally, leaving no room for a time gap there. Many others have attempted to argue for gaps in the Genesis chronogenealogies, but for example, even if Enoch were Jared's great-grandson rather than his son, that would not change the time span. Jared was still 162 when Enoch was born, and this would not change the date of creation. Thus, there is no reason to argue for these gaps. Now, ambiguities and imprecisions do not equate to falsehoods. The ambiguities detailed here do not mean the text is untruthful or erroneous. Simply because a modern Western person would use a different number convention to describe age than someone of a different culture or time does not mean that either party is mistaken or lying. It merely means that a proper time convention translation is necessary. 
In the absence of complete information, the number should be understood to imply a range of possible ages. Our interpretation needs to allow for various possible implications of the original text, resulting in a range of possible ages. Making a range more narrow than intended by the Bible could conflict with valid outside evidence and influence people, incorrectly, to disbelieve the Bible. But the Bible does make historical claims that can be used to estimate the age of the earth, so we should not pretend that the age could be any age. These claims can and should be used by Christians to evaluate the accuracy of extra biblical historical claims. Now, let's look at the resulting date ranges. From creation to the Babylonian captivity, we calculated a per Lincoln precision of 219 years, including the 50 year ambiguity concerning how long Abram remained in Haran, plus an overall systematic imprecision of 89 years. It is not possible to date creation with any more accuracy using just the genealogical data. We should allow for the possibility of plus 10 years of imprecision from calendar system changes, and to the possibility of 3% less solar years before the Exodus if the ancients used 12 lunar month years or longer blocks of lunar months, which would later be converted to 12 lunar month years. We must also consider the possibility of 1,326 additional years if the Septuagint chronogenealogies represent the original wording, another 301 years if the Samaritan Pentateuch is correct, 215 less years for the short sojourn view, and 46 fewer, or 8 more years, due to the ambiguities of the king lists of Judah and Israel. This yields an outside range of 3,236 to 5,078 years from creation to the Babylonian captivity. If the traditional historic dates of 587 BC or 586 BC for the captivity is correct, Earth cannot be more than 7,680 years old, which you can see explained in the table in this article, having been created between 5665 BC. And 3822 BC. The date of the flood is more significant to the evaluation of extra biblical history than is the date of creation. The flood probably occurred between 2600 BC and 2300 BC, but certainly between 3386 and 2256 BC. Finally, note that the only way to get a traditional date of creation of approximately 4000 BC is to use the short sojourn calculation and minimal to simple additive adjustment parameters. This makes it likely that the Earth is several hundred years older than most biblical creationists expect. However, we reject the idea that there are missing generations that might increase the age to as much as 10,000 years, as Whitcomb and Morris did in their seminal and influential book. The Genesis Flood. If you enjoyed that, there is a very good chance that you will enjoy all the great resources in the store at creation.com. I recommend that you get a copy of Evolution's Achilles Heels, the paperback or the documentary. It is a powerful book and film that exposes the fatal flaws of evolutionary thinking. Like no other work that we are aware of, it is authored by nine PhD scientists to produce a coordinated, coherent, powerful argument. All the authors received their doctorates from similar secular universities as their evolutionist counterparts. Each of them is a specialist in a field relevant to the subject written about, or interviewed about in the film natural selection, origin of life, geology, genetics, radiometric dating, the fossil record, cosmology, and ethics. 
Evolution's Achilles Heels directly demolishes the very pillars of the belief system that underpins our now-secular culture, evolutionary naturalism. It's coupled with the biblical command to reach the lost with the Bible's good news. In a nutshell, it's a comprehensive outreach tool like no other. Get your copy of Evolution's Achilles Heels at creation.com store. I am Joseph Darnell. For everyone at creation.com and the writers behind the Journal of Creation, thank you for listening.